Hi, this is Sander Wolf, culture agent columnist for LB Post, and I'm here with Nels Klein, G.E. Stinson. Thanks, guys, for sitting down with me today. Um, we're talking about this new project that you guys recorded uh, and is coming out on the Sounds Are Active label. Uh, the you guys have been playing together for a while, though. How when did that start? You know, I was thinking about this the other day, and I couldn't remember when we first played together. I think, you know, the first time we ever played together was with Alex and Stuart. Isn't back, that true? In the back room. Yeah, not, not in the public, though. <laughs> no. We used to have a, um, an improvising quartet with Nelson's brother, Alex Klein, and Stuart Liebig, the bassist. But this would be in the 80s. Oh, yeah, it was like late 80s, late I think. 80s. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we just... We never did any gigs with that group. We just jammed incessantly. This was when GE and I both had long hair. Yeah, so really long hair. <laughs> Nels looked like, look at like a, a hippie <laughs> from the sixties. And, and then after that, years. after that, we started doing. I think the first gig we did was at Congo Square, wasn't it? Remember that Congo Square? Now, see, I had completely put that. In I know, line. I know, but I think that was the first gig we ever did. We did a duo gig doing sort of like our version of ambient music at this little funky coffee house down on the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica before it got all kind of bougie then. And, uh, yeah, I forgot about Congo Square. Yeah, we used to hang out there and, and uh, drink coffee and Fine look at coffee girls. beverages, yeah. And look at girls. And <laughs> so one day we asked, the, I think I asked the guy... Could come down there and play. He was really nice. What happened to that guy? I don't know. It was that was a lot of fun. It was a good spot. Congo Square. Yeah, you know, that was the first time. And then we played the E Bar. Yeah, in we Pasadena. played the E Bar, and then I ended up playing in a group of GEs called A Thousand Other Names. Right. Actually, yeah, that came out of that with That's Brad Dukes and Karu, yeah. and we made a record. Had a few gigs. Right. And now. My memory, and I think this is this is correct. I asked you about this before. Um, you had played um, opening up for Present at Spaceland, and uh, I forget the person you were playing with. Um, and you were there, and I think this was right when you were sort of thinking about jumping in and and doing this with him. Is that correct? Do you remember that? I don't know, but I think. Are you talking about uh, how long ago was that? Oh gosh, I want to say eight years ago, maybe something like that. Seven. Jeez, that no, eight I, years no ago. we had already played together. There's a lot of water under the bridge. Yeah, that, <laughs> by that time, yeah. Um, I think that might have been. Remember us doing a gig, like um, I think you were playing with the trio. Was he playing with the trio? Um, that gig it was just you and another person. I think a bassist, Devin Sarno, perhaps. Perhaps oh. was it really droney and yes. Yeah, oh, okay, Devin Sarno. Right. Yeah. By that time, man. I mean, GE had just had already played on the the CD I did called Destroy All Nels Klein. Right. And uh, I had played on his uh, yeah, the thousand other names. Yeah, uh, and probably some of the material that ended up on his CD Vapor on Ecstatic Peace. Right. So. Yeah, we'd already done a bunch of stuff by then. Yeah, I don't. So I'm not sure what this would be. Well, so but I mean, 
specifically referring to um, oh recording something well this this kind duo. of improvisational duo thing that well actually you know we all, even though we did that one gig together we had never thought about doing a duo together because we always played the e bar we did the trio with Brad we Brad played, Dudes we played duo uh, in San, San Diego. Diego at Bonnie Wright's gallery space Spring Street Forum Spring Street Forum and that was I think not only one of my favorite gigs that I can recall it was really I think we both really liked it yeah. but they recorded it so we actually got to re-experience it and realize that it was good uh, that we liked it and I think maybe it was uh, memory of that that probably encouraged us to be sure to document our work properly at some point which is what Chris Schlarb is now unleashing upon the world uh, from well it's not the newest recording but um, there's a lot we did in one day that day so so the recording itself is um, basically live yeah it's totally live totally live there's no editing or processing after the fact it's just what no I mean we did a little bit of I mean I would say sort of like kind of minor mastering Ronan Chris Murphy um, engineered it and kind of produced it and I I don't even know if we, we just, I think he did some I, all I heard was kind of a finished version and we listened to it and went well that sounds pretty good you know <laughs> yeah, but it's not edited I mean it's, no it's not edited it's at the all. opposite of edited the right. CD is one long improvisation right. which is of course extremely commercially uh, <laughs> uh, astute <laughs> yeah, it's like 44 minute opening track or something right. like that. <laughs> well I was listening to it today and uh, you know for people who don't listen to this kind of music because there are people who don't um, <laughs> uh, how would you explain the process that you come together you sit down you set up your gear what happens then I mean do you just start playing or is there any kind well, of conversation beforehand I can say for a fact that uh the piece that is being released, the long piece, was the first thing that we recorded, and that there was, as I recall, not a single word of discussion other than, oh, look, you brought the yeah. pitch pirate. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, I see you have your dobro. Are yeah. you going to play that? Well, maybe later. So that was about the extent of it. Mm -hmm. And then later in the session, as... As we became bored. Yeah, as, as you start thinking about what to do next... Uh, and whether there should be something shorter than 50 minutes. Um, there was some discussion, but nothing really substantive other than, uh, I think I'll play my open tune guitar. Okay, I'll play dobro, something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, like, or, or the one the one where you, you said, let's not play any guitar. Oh, that's right. Let's just play our pedals. Just generated sounds with the pedals. Right. right. And actually, uh, I'm hoping that we can release the rest of the session, at least... Uh, most of it because uh, it did you know engender some some nice other things some of which sounds uh, rather compositional in retrospect well that was one of the things that I I was really enjoying about the recording is that it goes through all these sort of natural ebbs and flows and I can tell that the two of you are listening very very carefully to each other and um, uh, there's a lot of textures that you explore during the, the 40 minutes that you're playing um, do you is that just you're, you're, you're sitting there how does that work I mean how do you go from thing to thing how do you 
do you have a sense of where you start and where you end in your own mind, even if you don't plan it out with each other? I, yeah, think, I think that I, I might have recalled what where we had come from at some point. It's possible. But I think that ultimately us flowing from one thing to another uh, is just pretty much a happy accident. I think it has something to do with the amount of experience we have playing in general, not just together, and uh, a lot of consideration that's gone into that. But at the same time, that doesn't guarantee rapport, and it doesn't, uh, doesn't guarantee uh, any shifts, any sort of shifting musical interest. Um, I think that when we heard it back and realized that basically it's in a series of movements, as it were, that we thought it was good. That's why we wanted to put it out. We spent a lot of time improvising together before we ever did a gig. Um, I mean, I can I can remember like night after night after night of doing improvs with you and me and Brad at his house, and and literally, I mean, I mean, we're listening back to that later, thinking, wow, all of this was really good, but. I mean, we got to a point where it became really intuitive, the process of working together. It wasn't, there wasn't a lot of, I didn't, I don't think I recall thinking about anything at the time or planning anything. You just sort of like, I mean, my plan is to not have a plan, just to come in as clean and as possible, as as empty as possible and just see what happens, you know? And those are the times that, I mean that are the most magical. You know, and I, actually, I was interviewed in this movie, The Heart is a Drum Machine, that Hans Felstead produced. And one of the things I talked about was an experience that I had playing with you when Oguri was dancing at Club Tropical. We did a duo improv. And that was one of the, the most magical, and it's the thing I'm always trying to experience, and it's also why I'm a Zen Buddhist, because it, literally it's when you, like, it's the dropping away of body and mind where you're so immersed in what's happening you forget you're there and just the thing is just taken over and it's you know I can have I had this experience during that that gig where and I know I didn't think about what was happening it was the opposite of thinking it was non-thinking I literally woke up halfway through that gig thinking wow I wasn't even here you know what I mean and then I disappeared again back into the music and that was you know, we, I think that's pretty much what happens for us a lot of times, you know. I think it's the, at its best, it's the nature of what we're doing in that it's not only extemporaneous and maybe, as we've said, not particularly discussed and as such free of uh, a lot of restraints or doctrines, if you will, but, but also uh, because of a mutual love of sound in general, um, and I've said before also in uh, talking about just general music making that, that disappearing is the not the goal because then it wouldn't happen but it's the uh, it's a side effect certainly or, or if not the best part of a life of uh, activity in sound and uh, when you find people with whom you can go to that place uh, and who shares a sensibility uh, like that, then you, then anything is possible. But certainly, at its best, sound takes over, and we're perhaps extinguished or at least invisible. Yeah, that's. 
Um, I've I've had that experience a couple times too, actually. That um, you know that at Soundwalk, actually, last last year, um, some friends of mine organized a, a, a what they call a cleansing ritual, and um, basically there were fifteen or twenty people in a room, all playing one note, <laughs> mm. and they had been doing it for the intention was to do it for five hours, and. Um, I came in about halfway through and was there for about an hour. And when I left, I swear, like my head was like completely gone. <laughs> I mean, it was the weirdest. And I, for days afterwards, you know, I was sort of walking around in a very strange, kind of wonderful state. Mm. And I think that's that's something that I think a lot of people don't get necessarily when they're listening to it. You know, that that it's one of the reasons why people do this. You know, that it's really intensely personal and uh, really rewarding on a personal level. And I sometimes wonder for myself, and I'm sure I, other artists wonder this too, is that how is that, how is that conveyed through a recording or how is it conveyed through a, you know, I mean, do you, do you, I know you may individually having created that moment reconnect with it when you listen back to it, but do you think other people do I think it's a leap of faith, really, to imagine that somebody is actually going to take the time to pay attention, even when one is playing live for that person. But I also think that if people allow themselves even a few minutes, then we're, they're just participating. They might as well have been playing, too. You know, um, I think that with the attention spans being rather short for certain types of endeavor, for example, instrumental, if not just improvised, you know, uh, it's hard to think that someone's going to sit down and listen to this recording that we have coming out from beginning to end with absolute attention. Um, and I guess I really can't worry about it because all it is is a, a string of possibilities and of uh, what I think are good intentions Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, it's not taking anything away from the world, you know. No, not at all. <laughs> so, you know, you know. I, I, you know, like in a live setting, I think it's much easier to plug in as a listener to, a, because you know, like you're actually in the room. The, the you know, there's vibrations happening because, and I also remember that the gig that I was talking about at um, Crypto Night. That that was a gig that every, every lots of people came up and went wow what a mind blower that was i mean i think that when those kind of like peak sonic experiences take place people do plug into them if they're in the room right. it's a it's a it's a, you know it's experiential in that way i mean maybe they don't disappear but you can because listening is no different from creating right because you know it's it's all interconnected right. and i think you could probably do this listening although i think much more difficult um to a cd on headphones or whatever but the certainly the first time you hear something i know that i've had the experience of disappearing into it listening to something and and sort of being so engrossed in you know what's going to happen, and just anticip trying to anticipate it or whatever, just being totally present to it that you can lose yourself in it. I haven't had as intense an experience that way as I had as a as a performer, and I think that's what keeps bringing me back. And it's what it's what brought me to Zen Buddhism ultimately 
the experience of, well, what is that? What is that experience of losing yourself? You know, of the ego and the identity, identity disappearing. And well, you know, it's a little peak at reality is what it is. You know, that's what it really is. You know? So I don't know. You know, I don't know if you can do it listening. Um, it, it really depends on the person who's involved. Right. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I felt in listening to the recording today was that um, there's, that it's a process, you know, that it's, um, there's moments when it's just pure sound and there's moments when music emerges and there's, there's all these sort of interesting little things and it's, I think if you allow yourself as a listener to um, disengage from your expectation and just sort of experience it, it's, I mean, it's really, a, it's a beautiful piece of work. No, oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the ultimate challenge, I think, in American society especially, is to uh, allow oneself to be challenged, to allow oneself to be open, because we're not encouraged to do that so much. Uh, in the sort of, I guess, above-ground world. So, you know what I'm saying? Sure. That's why I think that people go for a... That's Vlad. <laughs> Excuse me. That's Vlad. He's sensing that there's another animal outside and he wants to get at it. There you go. So, go ahead. No, just in the, you know, certainly, there, wherever we look, there's always something that we can enjoy, learn from, be absorbed by. And this, what we do is just one tiny particle, but uh, uh, I think that if if you follow trends, even uh, you know, as things got really uh, all about noise, there was an equal amount of activity that was about barely the barely audible. I think as much as everything became about tiny bursts of interest then super long things happen and then back to little tiny things and there's always a reaction and it's just all part of an ongoing process that whether or not anyone pays attention or not will, con will continue to exist well this is, this is <laughs> another mail question maybe yeah probably Vlad, Vlad does not like the mail delivery person <laughs> it's alright yeah. I'm sure it's nothing personal yeah. <laughs> uh, she's a very sweet girl actually <laughs> Um, one of the things that I think a lot of people are may not get uh, from, from not being a musician is that both of you play what could be described as really technical stuff, you know, where you're sight reading written down stuff, or you're playing very carefully arranged music, and uh, you're also doing sort of more traditional jazz style, improvisational stuff, um, and, you know, a lot of different contexts, and... There's there's a place there's a place in all of this for this way more experimental stuff too, and I think what you were talking about before about um, you know that it's almost like a spiritual practice, dare I say, mm -hmm. um, you know that that I mean, do you get that kind of disappearing feeling when you're when you're um, playing something that's perhaps more tactical or or um, oh you know, sometimes. Sometimes I do, but uh, for me, then per, it's a, this is a personal thing. I'm not saying this would be true for anybody else, but sometimes for me, it has a, a lot to do with how much sound there is. So uh, I find that the process of reading music and just barely sort of you know flying by the seat of my pants—it's pretty hard to get fully immersed in 
in the way what we're talking about. And that's just maybe my lack of ability in that area. Maybe for somebody else, that activity is the most immersing activity. For me, it's the exact opposite. I'd much rather uh, be in the sandbox, which is, I think, what we're kind of doing is going into the sound sandbox, (laughs) which obviously is rather like a spiritual practice, as you're saying. But I think that ultimately, I guess, any... Uh, endeavor, whether it's artistic or not, that is, uh, I guess, just has some sort of fulfillment or some sort of positive energy behind it is is worthy of attention or worthy of doing. Um, But pure sound or sound for sound's sake, if we want to put it in those words, is, I think, our go-to space when we share sound, you know, when we're doing our things together. We've tried a lot of other types of music together, for sure. And, and they've been successful. We've liked it. But, yeah. but uh, uh, you know, there are only a handful of other musicians that I, uh, I think I can gauge on a pure sound level with. And everyone has a different sensibility or a different palette. But I think that when I'm into it, they're into it and then we try to make it happen more than once in a lifetime and and it's kind of just fulfilling unto itself whether or not it matters in some sort of larger scheme or not right right well I I think like that's what I was sort of talking about before is that there's this I think there's it's it's just so personally rewarding it seems sort of abstract I mean a lot of times people think of music performances as somehow commercial and and disconnected from art you know but I think this particular kind of thing is so much more about art than it is about anything that's commercial and well it certainly doesn't have any commercial value whatsoever in this well, no, culture and I think that it's easier for people to possibly be thrown off were they to see us perform because we both have electric guitars you know I think that if we were standing there with, with amplified boxes of leaves, like <laughs> like, like Brandon LaBelle, you yeah, say, right, right. I think they'd probably not necessarily think of it as a mere entertainment so mm-hmm, easily. Right. You know, um, I, w- I was recalling as we've been sitting here talking that that uh, GE and I did actually discuss before we ever recorded the thing what we wanted to do so you know how you just throw ideas out and I seem to recall that the the initial instigation of recording was to make some crazy glitched out marriage of G's sort of rhythm and noise hip post hip oh, right. glitch culture sensibility and my sort of I guess whatever whatever my your, your sound your textural sonic whatever palette and and we didn't do that. We did. <laughs> we did That's not what happened. We did what we did, right. and and that uh, the technology that that GE's familiar with at this point over the, that he's refining over the last few years, we didn't bring to bear on this project at all. And I don't recall ever having a discussion in which we decided not to go there. But yeah, I don't but, either. But but it was, I think, maybe one of my original. Uh, Ideas, thinking that also be fascinating. Oh, GE's growing in areas that I'm no longer quite familiar with. This will be cool if he can bring that in. And yeah, although it was an area that you did investigate at one point with like rhythm plague and stuff like that. Well, yeah, a million years ago. Million but, years but, ago. but since I'm always on the road now, um, I'm sort of losing the thread with some of my favorite individuals. And so GE's been growing in these different directions for years and years now. And, and I'm not always up on 
where that's where that is exactly. Whereas before, when we used to live near near each other, we spent inordinate amounts of time together, uh, listening and you know sharing records and and just playing and doing all kinds of stuff. So it's kind of a different dynamic at this point. And other things. Yeah. Which we won't talk about. <laughs> well, one of the things I was going to mention about listening to the recording is that um, the... the uh, Other fermented... Yeah. <laughs> and non-fermented, too. Anyway, sorry. Um, that's all good. Um, is, is I think, you know, you're talking about when, you, when an audience member is sitting in, in the room and looking at you playing your guitars. I think that one of the nice things about the recording is if you approach it without any kind of preconceived notion and just hear it as sound, it's almost surprising, mm. in a way, when the, the sounds of the guitar eventually emerge sort of less altered than they do at the beginning. Right. Um, and I think that's, I think that's actually kind of a treat. Yeah, you know, that, cool. That, that um, there's, this, there's this beginning part, which at first it sounds like it's just gonna kind of explode into noise and Things sort of slowly begin to emerge out of, out of that chaos that have a real musical quality to them. So. I think one of the strangest things about uh, some of our improvisations that I find the most rewarding to listen to again uh, is that it's it's rare that we leave the listener with just a big ball of of hell sound. And I think that. <laughs> I think that we basically kind of have this slightly programmatic, if not uh, humanistic or romantic idea of resolution. And I think that, that, that we tend to go at the end of each piece to some kind of a resolution that's, that's uh, at least bittersweet, if not actually sweet. Mm-hmm. And I think that I personally, as a kind of a... Romantic type person find that not ironic at all. It's mm. not mm. arch or anything. It's sincere, mm. and and as such, I think uh, might even appeal to someone if he or she can make it that far. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that 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 we're we are actually without talking about it, like spontaneously composing. You know, and and the thing that makes it. Um, interesting is a lot of shared musical history in terms of even listening just what we grew up with as far as influences and then and then having that just sort of come out in this kind of less foreign or less um, sort of structured way but nevertheless there is a desire to kind of make something beautiful at times, you know, and it's kind of like, um, you know, and I think I've talked to Stuart about this, how it is free. In other words, anything is possible. And we don't have this kind of agenda of, well, you can't play something that's a major chord because that's too conventional. We don't have any kind of prohibitions about what what we can or can't do. We can do anything. I mean, we could break into a country music piece if we wanted to, or a blues thing, which we, you know. Well, there's actually of the outtakes, if you want to call it that. I I prefer to call it volume two. um, (laughs) There's a lap steel piece that's almost this kind of breezy. Yeah. It's kind of psychedelic, but it's kind almost like something you'd listen to uh, on a rowboat or something. (laughs) 
uh, and if, if people hear it as soundscapes or say like, wow, you guys should do soundtracks, I think that's one of the ultimate outgrowths of the idea of a musical sound or a musical melody or a musical feeling having an association with anything in reality that we see in reality. And I say, sure, why not? I don't necessarily think that way. And I don't think GE does, when we're, certainly not when we're playing, but, mm. but uh, I think it's absolutely acceptable that somebody would would say, oh, this is the storm, and this is the calm at the end of the right, storm. Right, right. Whatever people say right. is fine. We're not thinking that way, but but uh, but in a way, I think that there is a, a bit of a programmatic tendency if you equate emotion and sound uh, and the manipulation of one's physical body, whether it's with pre-programmed information as to you know a major chord is a happy feeling and mm-hmm. a minor chord is sad. Well, if you take that as a as a template, then you just expand from there. Then then all kinds of things are possible. Uh, but certainly there's no there's no plan for us. But I think that we know that we're pushing each other's buttons when we make certain music, musical decisions, whether or not we spent more than half a half a second pondering that uh, I know that there's things that GE's going to play that that might uh, lead me to play a very Robin Guthrie Cocteau Twins thing it's very, <laughs> it's very possible but just using this as an example it may come that, up right. if I know that I do that he'll know that that's what I'm doing right. and whether he responds to it with something related to that or not isn't even the point but the point is that it's heard it's recognized and that whether it's a, a an inside sort of thing is part of how we're communicating, and it's it's not necessary for anyone else to know that, but it is kind of how we're thinking about sound, also because of all these shared experiences we're talking. Yeah, about. there's definitely a shared vocabulary. So that's fun. That's not just necessarily art or spiritual pursuit. It's just plain good-natured fun. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's I mean, and that's something that 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 kind of shared vocabulary that's not something that you can just sort of stumble across. You know, that's something that you guys have really uh, cultivated together, right? It's true, and, and, uh, and it's funny because when I met GE, he was uh, <laughs> kind of playing with a lot of different equipment than I ever... I never knew anybody that had so much, you know, like really... Uh, Expensive gear and rack type <laughs> stuff, which he was using in a very unique way, and and uh, and that's completely changed. He's completely changed his palette, but the sensibility is still completely intact. Although I think he's certainly gotten sicker over the last <laughs> decade, which is ditto is fine. Yes. You know, that's you've gotten sicker fun. too. I yes, I must have. And and without. I'm not certain that we would term that ugly per se, but I think that without contrast, then beauty is just bland. It's just, you can't even perceive it. Mm -hmm. And so beauty is all things, I think, stirring and powerful ultimately and not necessarily, uh, uh, what's the word? Conventional. Uh, Yeah, or or just... uh, For I've lost my pleasing, yep, pleasing yeah, yeah, and enduring, yeah. and and, yeah. and uh, uh, I just don't want to use the word safe, but <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good synonym. But familiar, I, yeah, it's just that without that heightened uh, 
sense of, I guess, just it's a sensation. Uh, then it's just kind of nothing, you know. Although I have to confess that I think things sounds are really beautiful that a lot of people think are hideously ugly, <laughs> and I think that GE is the same way, and yeah. that's one of the reasons we're friends and play music together. Right? Yeah, I mean, I I love. <laughs> I mean, my favorite sound in the world right now is 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 digital glitches. <laughs> I, I love the sound of di- and the crunchier the better. The more bit crushed something is, the more beautiful I think it is, it, and it absolutely is. is Do you like the sound when, when uh, see when we're on the on the, the, the fancy tour bus, we have satellite. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and then you lose the signal <laughs> for a while, and I, it makes this like this digital glitch. Heinous kind of sound. You like that? I, I love that sound. I love I love the visual <laughs> thing that happens oh, yeah. when it goes all glitchy and right. kind of pixelated. I love the whole thing. I mean, digital has created this whole new vab- vocabulary of distortion that didn't exist before. It's so great. What about digital feedback? Yeah. Oh, that's really heinous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, I, have, I think I have trouble with some of these sounds because of the way they do get right inside your head. Yeah. And they're, they they're, seem to have no point of, of origin. They yeah. seem to be everywhere at once. Yeah, they're very, they're very present. There doesn't seem to be any ambience around them. I think that uh, the computer musician and composer Ikwe Mori, I think, was one of the trailblazers in this, <clears throat> this regard. Uh, her use of this kind of stair-step uh, rhythm programming post-drum machine that she does uh, really has that quality that just gets right in there. It's and very, it's very it flat and right in your face yeah, and, and very kind of challenging listening. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard. I, I, wouldn't, I don't automatically go to that. My tendency is to take that sound and put something else on it to kind of make it a little more um, humane, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> sort, of, sort of buffer the shrapnel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is kind of, yeah, buffer the shrapnel. <laughs> the, the third volume. Yeah. Jesus, <laughs> and those climb buffer the shrapnel. <laughs> right after hacked off. <laughs> it's an inside joke. Well, now, uh, we, you, you, you both have been talking about gear a little bit. I, um, I hope you don't mind me delving into this. Um, oh, let's do it. Um, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> what is your go-to, especially for, for um, the work you do together, um, what is your go-to instrument? What is your go-to instrument, at least to start with? I know that you talked about lap steel and dobro, but... Well, for me, it's always the same go-to instrument. It's a Fender Jazzmaster guitar. That's it. That's my my guitar. Everything else is just a luxury. (laughs) (laughs) What is it it about the Jazzmaster that that appeals to you? Uh, It's awkward, like Nels. No, it isn't. (laughs) For most people. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. See, I've, there, had, that, that I've had to answer this question actually for Fender guitars of all people, so okay. I have thought about it. Uh-huh. But uh, I'll try to not get too long-winded. But I would say that the first thing that appealed to me uh, was to get a guitar that had strings behind the bridge because I was I'd been listening to Sonic Youth a lot, and I realized uh, that a lot of the sounds I was hearing were. Not just open tunings that they have so delightfully microtonally perfectly tuned, but uh, strings behind the bridge. And so I just bought the first guitar that was of that ilk, 
that I saw in the recycler the week I had $300, and that was a Fender Jaguar, mm -hmm. uh, 66 Fender Jaguar, which I played for years and years, uh, not knowing the difference between a, a Jazzmaster and a Jaguar. The Jazzmaster just has more oomph. It has those big old single-coil pickups and a little bit of extra string length, which gives it more, more tension, right. and I like string tension, and... Uh, uh, the surprise when I got the Jaguar was that the the whole feel of the guitar is so incredibly comfortable. Um, although I have to say that it, were it uncomfortable, I probably would have still played it because it was in the sonic zone that I was looking for, and I never really am looking for comfort necessarily when mm -hmm. I play a guitar. I just want it to sound, and I want sounds to come out of it that I like, so I'll, I'll make it work. You know what I'm saying? Sure. You know, people like pick up a guitar and then they go, "Oh, the neck is just oh, you're right." Play it. You know what I mean? I, I usually think about that like, two years down the road. Hey, I wonder if this well, neck yeah. is really good. No, no. Nels is <laughs> like a Christian monk in that respect. He'd rather have a guitar that feels like a hair shirt. <laughs> no, no. The one has it's like oh, this the neck is like butter, man. Well, I have experienced that recently on other guitars, and I do pretty much think that's for others. <laughs> For the, the weaker, <laughs> Jeff the weaker. Not the weaker, but Jeff the people who are not willing to endure the stoic life. Jeff Tweedy loves. I'm joking. I'm pulling a chain. Early '60s Barney Kessel mm -hmm. gets some Barney Kessel okay. guitars, and I played his Barney Kessels. And when I play those guitars, I just think, Wow, what would life be like if you played a guitar that was this buttery and fast <laughs> to play all the time? Yeah. You know, just the neck on those things is insane. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the the, the Jazzmaster just has. Uh, Everything I like about an electric guitar, except if one is trying to get rid of hum and it's, you have a single coil situation, then that's the only problem. I just work a volume pedal all the time, so I minimize hum that way. And then, of course, by having single coil pickups, then and GE does this too. Then we can uh, I can take a toy megaphone and sing into the guitar. He can put cassette tape recorders in through the pickups, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and all kinds of other aleatoric information can go into the guitar because of that that live sort of raw technology as opposed to the smooth humbucker right. sort of thing. So everything, like I say, everything else is just a different kind of guitar. But I have millions of variations on Jaguars and Jazzmasters, and I've bought a lot of guitars in the last few years since I've been in Wilco, and have joked more than once that it's completely pointless <laughs> for me to be buying more guitars, because I really should just play Jazzmasters and Jaguars. Yeah. Uh, he got me into these Jerry Jones guitars ages ago, and uh, and that sort of set me off on a, on a different tonal path because of the lipstick case pickups and the nice uh, Dan Electro sort of cheap design that it creates a really beautiful sounding instrument. So that's been a, a nice thing, and we still both play those guitars, and, and uh, I've acquired a few more. Yeah, I was rather proud of the really cheap. Dan Electros that came out a while back. Right. Um, we both sure. had, we both had one of those. Yeah, yeah. I got rid of mine. <laughs> now now what about you? What's your go to Well actually my instrument of choice mostly is, is a laptop now, but <laughs> not in this band. <laughs> not in this duo. Um, and it's really funny, my guitar is now a three hundred dollar Mexican tele, Fender Mexican tele telecaster. And it's for years and years, I was a vintage Strat guy, mm -hmm. and I still have probably the best guitar I've ever owned. I still own it, 
Um, although I sold one of my good guitars to Nels, my Gretsch Tennessee. That's a really funny story, actually. Yeah. It bears out what I'm saying. Right. Because it's yeah. this beautiful Gretsch Tennessee, and that, that. It sounds amazing. It's just a it's fantastic a guitar. guitar, and I used to just look at his guitar and just think, wow, that's the most beautiful guitar, and it's got great, unusual tones. And then he said, look, I'm finally going to sell this thing. I talked him out of selling it numerous, <laughs> numerous times. times. And then. Uh, and then I bought it, and I just can't figure out what to do with it because because I've tried, I've forced it on Wilco songs. Like I'm going to play the Tennessee on this, and it's just so far I haven't found the right context for that guitar. And every time I pick up some Tysco Del Rey or a, or a, seriously or yeah. or an Echo or some ugly duckling of the '60s, mm-hmm. that's really. That'll work for me, right. as opposed, and of course the Jazz Masters and Jaguars. So I'm still trying to wrestle with the with the delightful fancy guitars. But so I, yeah, so I've had a lots of amazing guitars. I mean, literally. I mean, if I had them all now, it'd probably be worth about God only knows how much money. Gold top Les Paul, black Les Paul, the Tennessee, and and, the, and I have one Strat left that I that I never play. And at certain point, I guess when I began like doing a lot of extended technique, and I even have tried like taking things like Jaguars, putting extra pickups on them. You, you still know. have that though, right? No, I got rid of that one too. Uh, I don't use white, that anymore. Japanese? No, don't have it anymore. And I just kind of, one day I had borrowed Woody Alpenalp's cheap little Mexican Telecaster. And I thought, God, I love this guitar. It just, and you know, it goes back to my earliest um, like my teenage years seeing Jeff Beck playing with the Yardbirds playing Telecaster and I was like wow someday I'm going to have a Telecaster <laughs> and and um, so when I borrowed it from Woody I was like okay I'm going to go find a Mexican Tele 300 bucks and I just scoured LA and I finally found a really good one and that's my main guitar now and um, the great thing about it is it could burn up in a fire and it would not matter at all because it's not worth anything, but it's a great sounding guitar. I love it. I think it's not a great guitar in any sense of being a, a brilliant classic, you know, like, I mean, I lent it to Jeremy Drake and he told me he couldn't even play it. The, the action was so high, he couldn't even play it. I'm like, what? Which well, is just is bizarre to me because I like to have a guitar that has high action so I can play slide on it too and do lots of other things like thread things through the strings and all sorts of extended technique things, you know. But that being said... I don't think I've ever played your telly. I'll have to check this it's out. Pretty funky. <laughs> well, like it. It's pretty funky. It's pretty funky. I have a Mexican telly now, actually, but it's, it's, that's a whole other story. But the telly, like the telly is, is the go-to guitar, but I have to also acknowledge my Jerry Jones 12-string, which is probably the greatest sounding guitar I've ever owned. And it, it is my second, it's the guitar, if I'm going to bring a second guitar, I always go to that guitar. And I don't know why it has that same, like, very cheap kind of the Dan Electro technology thing where I don't even know what that... It's just made out of board. Board, I don't even know what that is, press fiber board or whatever. <laughs> Basically it's hollow. Whatever it is, you know, but that guitar is astonishing sounding. It's really, really amazing and some of the great... Two of the greatest pickups I've ever heard on a guitar. So those are the the Telly is number one, and the the, the uh, Jerry Jones twelve string is a 
just slightly behind it. The funny thing is that that you know the, with the Wilcos, we just did these TV appearances, and I at one point just imagined the guys at Fender who I don't have a deal with them or anything, but they've been really nice to me and they're I'm noticeable now. Maybe is why, but but uh, uh, both those appearances, I was playing Jerry Jones <laughs> <laughs> because. I had to play the the longhorn that I have now with the baritone neck. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other story uh, for one song, and then the twelve string Neptune, which is my favorite. Uh, I have two of those now, and then my my twelve string like yours. You, you got one of the first ones he ever made, I think. One of the first I, yeah, I got very lucky in that. I think all the Jerry Jones I bought were were some of the first ones he ever made, and they were in Westwood Music. And um, I used to know those guys really well, and I would go in there, and I was just, you know, like I can't remember, was it Mark would say, "Oh, check these out," and I was like, "Holy mackerel!" The well, first I one I bought was the was the baritone. I remember when you got them. Yeah. And the first one I bought was a baritone. Yeah. Which I bought when I was still in the Geraldine Fibbers, and that is one of the best guitars I've ever. Owned. Yeah, they're brilliant guitars. They're I'm, really, really great. The sustain is ridiculous. I fantasize about having a. They're still not. I mean, they're not expensive compared to what people are doing these days with the the cost of guitars. I mean, for a guitar that's new, that's made well, I'd say that a thousand bucks or less is not so bad. Yeah, I mean, they're selling Telecasters now for five thousand dollars. You know, the Merle Haggard signature model, and I'm going, wait, Merle Haggard isn't that good a guitar player? Does it come with a built-in phase shift? I don't know. I say that out of love. Yes, I love Merle. Too. I love that he I know never he's a ever reactionary Republican dickhead. Anyway, sorry. He never turned it off after the seventies. I love that about him. The, the phase shifter was yes, the same. Yes, it's true. So now, what about extended technique? You, were, you mentioned this, and this is actually something I was going to ask you about anyway. But you both, you both do extended technique. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? How it kind of fits into what you're doing as far as. Well, I don't consider myself to be that much of an extended technique person, frankly. I think I'm a dabbler. Uh, I think that when... Don't laugh. That's I think, ridiculous. I think that man. when GE started checking out extended technique guys, and, and I think maybe got wind of, of Fred Frith and some of these people, he went you know, really into it. And, uh, and has refined it a lot further than I have. I kind of just have worked it sort of boiled it down to a couple of things. Um, I think a lot of what I'm doing that doesn't sound like guitar is much more effects pedal based than mm-hmm. extended technique based. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to somebody like Derek Bailey who had worked out an, uh, an elaborate uh, system of artificial and natural harmonics and uh, obviously playing behind the bridge and then scrapes and all these t- different types of things in a very... Uh, intrepid way in a rather scientific way I I am not scientific and tend to just use certain things that might be associated with extended technique for just uh, to extend maybe the what I consider to be the emotional range of the instrument rather than the technical Mm -hmm. you know what I mean that's sure and, and so I, mean, I use a spring and I'll use certain parts of a bottleneck or I'll use a you know, battery powered drink stirrer or something but, but uh, in the mega mouth yeah the but, mega not, mouth. Th- but not much else really you know uh, GE on the other hand has what looks to be something out of dead ringers when <laughs> <laughs> this whole you know meticulously laid out sort of medical uh, 
surgical. Yeah, I don't always bring those now. But yeah, well, I, well, I had we both had this friend Alistair Milne, who's a Scottish artist who was making objects for me, and and basically, yeah, I mean, I started, and I think sort of like conceptually, this started for me a long time ago, and it started with hearing bands like Weather Report and things like that where you would hear people doing and it really I mean for me it was like I heard Joe Zavinol playing electric piano and, and using the ring modulator and, and I was like how, how can I get my guitar to do that and then at the same time I was like these are the sort of nascent experiments in this realm where I would be like oh I want it to sound like a dosungoni from Africa you know and I would experiment with putting tin foil on the head of the guitar you know so, you know, when I, when I came across Fred Frith, when I started hearing, hearing Fred Frith, you know, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is really what I want to, you know, like investigate more, more deeply, you know. And the effects thing, I always, I, I see, I don't make this distinction between effects and extended technique. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, any pedal is an extended technique if you're using it like an instrument. But it's a, you know, it's a whatever. Right. That's why I think of you as an extended technique guy. Because to me, the 16 second delay is extended technique. It's where you're looping and you're using the loop now as another instrument, as a new voice. Right. And Nels is a master of using loops and manipulating the loops and, and, have, and, and using that in addition to the conventional guitar sound, you know. That his use of 16 second delay inspired me a lot to sort of go into looping more you know so and a lot of other people I have to say you know and then you know and a lot of guys have started using that sort of like looping technology as part of that whole extended technique you know like language now it is but I really then I, I at certain point I was like any object what does this do to the guitar how can I use the to make a sound that hasn't been made before is going to be interesting to me, you know. And and literally, it's from paintbrushes to latte milk frothers to you know whatever it is. It doesn't matter, you know. You can find a way. And sometimes they don't work, you know. But a lot of times they do, you know. Well, and that's the thing is, is it's all it's all part of you know exploring the palette. I guess yeah. you'd say you know it's it's. Uh, I mean, you were mentioning Fred Frith, and I'm sure you've seen stuff across the board. Right? Yeah, you know, there's that great. I have it here. <laughs> I have it at home. Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, there's the great scene where he goes to the little Japanese market. And he's right. buying all that stuff. Right. You, you don't know what, why he's buying it, and then he, he takes it all home and he's like throwing it this little home handmade guitar thing. You know, it's. I mean, I think that that's a good example of of what you're talking about. I think there's um, a lot of things that. I mean, I remember seeing, I don't know if it was Fred or somebody else, but put um, alligator clips. Yeah, yeah, Fred, that's, uh, that's one of the yeah. first things I ever did yeah. to imitate him, actually. Yeah. Because we, I, actually, we actually, I should throw this in here, because we actually did a road trip together once. Remember this? To San Francisco, the two of us drove up just to see Fred Frith playing with... With Mark Dresser. Mark Dresser and, and, and Kui Mori. Yeah. And also he did a set with... Uh, uh, Oh, what's his name? Uh, the synth guy. Bob Ostertag. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, you but, I, but I was going to, you know, I bought the the guitar solos record um, when it was a new record. So this was must have been '76, maybe. Mm -hmm. And and then he came through Los Angeles several times, 
in the late 70s and uh, early 80s, not only with Massacre once, but but uh, with, well, I guess, it, what is loosely termed at this point the guitars on tables type of uh, solo performances. And um, this had a, definitely had a profound effect on me, but I think that in the back of my mind, I always knew that I was going to be a guy who primarily played conventional guitar in the sense that I was going to play notes and chords and melodies and rhythms. And that that was uh, probably going to far outweigh any serious investigation into extended techniques or, or using different objects or whatnot. I think that's why I, after, I guess, trying to, to copy that and use certain uh, aspects of his world or of Derek Bailey's world or even of... Uh, uh, Ralph Towner's world with with matchbooks and and open tunings and all this sort of thing that I pretty much have had to simplify things, uh, not just for aesthetic reasons, but sometimes just for practical reasons. Sure. You know, I have this running joke with the guys in my trio and the singers and with the people that book us now that someday I'm going to do a tour with more than one guitar, <laughs> and and uh, it's just impossible. It's impossible uh, to make any money or deal with the airlines or whatever it is with extra gear at this point. And I know there are plenty of people out there who do it, but when you're living on a sort of marginal tourist sort of structure, it pushes things over the edge. Um, my only solution was to ask for any guitar in working condition as part of the uh, <laughs> the backline back writer. And then I can op- at least open tune it and, and play some of the open tune pieces if it works you know but 12 string would be my first thing I would want to bring along in addition and I can't you know similarly I can't bring a million different objects and whatnot I've had to to bring the pedals instead and just kind of leave it in that world because that's my world of pure uh, those are my crutches you know (laughs) gotta have my pedals and I certainly can't bring all the ones I'd like I have it down now so that they're only pedals of a certain size Mm -hmm. so now okay we're talking about pedals let's talk about pedals Um, do you do the nerd duck girls too now have you oh sorry yeah you did (laughs) (laughs) yeah right girls like there's gonna be any girls listening to this anyway have you have you have you swallowed the pill have you drank the Kool-Aid for the whole boutique pedal thing. Are you? Or are you kidding me? Serious? Long time ago. You know the worst thing about the we 80s, made the Kool Aid. Yeah, <laughs> totally. The worst thing about the eighties and nineties was there. You couldn't even find a single good fuzz box anywhere unless yeah. you went to a a, a pawn shop or yeah. something and looked out and found one that was still working. Right. And and so we've gone from this dry spell where, in order to get this really nasally sort of fox tone machine fuzz. I actually had a multi, a multi effects thing that I would program the fuzz sounds myself to get them to sound like vintage fuzz. <laughs> um, now, now there's only about you know, two hundred thousand different fuzz boxes, let alone other types of pedals. And, and hell, we were happy with just Zvex because yeah, when yeah. he came out, it was like, oh my god, look at yeah. all these choices. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so, uh, uh, I still use pedals that aren't boutique pedals mm-hmm. I, I just use whatever works but I'd have to say that that uh, I once wrote on my website 
that one cannot have too many fuzz boxes. And I, <laughs> I am now going to have to take that statement back. <laughs> I think I have because you've reached now. it. You've reached <laughs> it to the limit. You're I over the limit. So many fuzz boxes now, and frankly, uh, I'm just so charmed by any fuzz box with a certain personality. Uh, but I've overdone it. So um, yeah, I come over to my house. My pantry is is all effects pedals, and then I have a desk. That was my father's <laughs> roll top desk, and it's filled with effects pedals. And then there's still some just lying around. Well, I, I'm the same way, actually. I I am addicted to fuzz pedals, and I, I've not gone over the over overboard yet. But I can see how you could. Well, I think that that I've kind of at the point now when somebody tells me just. Just yesterday, I was at this Sky Sachs memorial, and this friend of mine happened to be there, and she said, oh, uh, you know, we, where she works, we just got in this, uh, so-and-so's making this new octave something fuzz that does this and this, and it's really unbelievable, and it's really just completely wild, and I, I actually thought, nah. <laughs> <laughs> how, many, how many fuzz boxes I have that fit that description? That's and, great, and uh, and they all have their own unique personalities. And if I could make enough records that featured fuzz of various varieties, <laughs> I could justify having all these and say, "Listen, I used that for those three notes. I used the Catalan bread." You know, wait a minute, fuzz for lovers. <laughs> <laughs> The Nels Klein yeah. compilation. Yeah. A different fuzz on every song. But frankly, when, when I have to go out and play, uh, I go to the same things that I know work that are not just uh, things I think sound nice, but they have to be somewhat versatile mm-hmm. because then I can address any particular idea. And so there's just a handful of things I always use. And everything else is just some sort of weird... Uh, fantasy life for me you know where I can say wow look I, yeah check this thing out and it just all it does is sound like a cough or something yeah. like everyone goes whoa that's incredible it sounds what like is, a cough. what does boutique pedal mean <laughs> small company I guess small it's company. not yeah. funded by a large corporation or something. yeah usually it means to me anyway you know somebody who's building stuff in a in a by hand, a cottage industry. Yeah, because you know, actually, by that definition, I don't actually have that many boutique pedals. Boutique yeah, pedals. I don't have as many as. People I think from. I have the three Zvex pedals, and that's about it. All my, all the rest of my pedals are basically major companies like Electro Harmonics or. Uh, you know, I would like consider boss, them, you know, I would consider like the harmonics pretty. They're they're, they're boutiquey. Yeah, they are. They're one of the okay. only ones that's going take it back. Business at that. I take it back through all those years. <clears throat> but they didn't even make most of their old line for, yeah. until the last few years. They reintroduced. It really, it really matters. You know, it's more important is what does the pedal do? Or yeah. because I mean, there are a million boutique companies making. Classic blues fuzz. I'm like, right. well, whatever, it's dude. I have a, those. I have a Fender amp. I don't need blues fuzz. I can just turn up the amp. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it's like Neil Young has the Wizard. The Wizard. The Wizard. <laughs> the Wizard. What's the Wizard? You, you know about the Wizard? Does it take a P for him? The, the Wizard is was designed and built by Larry Craig, his guitar tech, and oh. basically he plays. A series of Tweed Deluxes on stage, uh. and the Wizard is a remote-controlled. Uh, well, it's pedal controlled by a pedal, and it basically turns the, the volume and tone knobs on top oh. of the amp remotely. Oh, so he wants more distortion. He just turns the amp. Oh, up. great! So there you go. So there, that's 
just what you're talking about. He doesn't. People think he uses all this fuzz. He doesn't use a single fuzz box. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So he just plays really loud. <laughs> well, he has them all cranked, and and he does have for his low octave channel that he has a, a splitter, um, a, an old magnetone PA. It's not even a column. It's a monolith. Are you serious? Oh, oh wow, that's sick. That, uh, he bought. On Sunset Boulevard, outside, I think Freedom Guitars or somewhere, it was on the street. Oh, you're kidding! It was wow. on, the, on the corner with an arrow on it to point to get people to look at the store. Right. And he went by and, and he apparently it. said, uh, "I want that." I remember that place. <laughs> yeah. It was right on the corner, right around from right. Voltage. Exactly. Yeah. Right near the Mesa Boogie Mesa Store. Mesa Boogie Store. Right? And uh, and I'll, I'll just while we're talking, I'll he's going to pull it up so you have a photograph of because it. it's taller than me. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. yeah I think anyway. I, I think I bought. A bass from Freedom Guitars. I think it was uh, a fretless <coughs> Japanese uh, uh, jazz bass. Oh yeah, yeah. I used to I used to peruse that place all the time, looking for whatever. They used to have lots of like weird guitars in there, like sort of not you know like odd, funky guitars. You know, actually, in back in the day, they were pretty cheap too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were a bunch of really nice stores back back in the day. Back know. in the day, I couldn't, I didn't have any money, right. yeah. and I swear I didn't go to these stores because it was just too unhappy for me. Right. Just to, oh, gee. Well, you already had your guitar; you just didn't know it yet. Yes. Yeah, I, I had just a handful of guitars in those days, and now look. But yes, we do have too far too many pedals, but I'm using them all. <laughs> yeah, I'm not using them all. I, I when I made my record uh, that came out. Did I make that record this year? I didn't like it. <laughs> Coward. I don't remember when I recorded it. It was late last no, year. Um, I, I brought a ton of stuff into the studio to, to mess about with, but but really only used a, a, a handful of things beyond what I always use. Mm-hmm. You know? mm. Well, there it is. There's Neil's Mac. Wow, look at that thing. It's gigantic. Yeah. For those for those of you listening to the podcast, I'm looking at a photograph of Nels Klein with Neil Young's Magnetone speaker cabinet, which is literally like almost four times as big as you are. Yeah, and then I'll and the same you, height as Nels, and which I'll show is like you six foot. Well, it's a little taller than me, I think. And then I'll show you also. He has the uh, the, the Fender Deluxe, one of them on a skateboard, so he can just. There's the, ah, there's that's the great on a skateboard. That's it's hilarious. hilarious. And then when he wants to hear it better, he just it just slides towards him. I don't know how this is going to be playing on a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, it's a sick setup. So, and do you have plans to play together live anywhere in the next little while? I mean, well, we talked about um, so at some point after the record is released, doing some gigs uh, somewhere. We're not sure where yeah. yet. I'd have to be on like this. That's the hitch. When is this thing coming out? September something? Well, it's out. Because I'm holding September. As a download. It's a pre-order. It's actually as a pre-order. You can buy it now and then you'll get a hard copy I should as announce well. this on my website, shouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> soundsreactive.com. Yeah, soundsreactive.com. Okay. And, and, um, and uh, Chris put it up as a pre-order in which you can download it now and you'll... And it's at a reduced price, too. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and then you will actually get a hard copy of the CD with the art. Right, the CD and the digital download together are, I think, like eight bucks. Yeah. It's irresistible. Yeah. 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 It's, <laughs> yeah. And the reason that we, are, we have a CD 
coming out in addition to the download is because we are old. <laughs> And we like the artifact. The way we do that, the way we talk about this now, Nelson, <laughs> is, is to say we're OGs. Okay. Because uh, that's hipper way to talk about yourself. You're an OG. Okay. How did you guys connect with Chris, by the way? I'm just curious. Huh? I met Chris through uh, Lynn Johnston. He was recording Lynn Johnston, uh, which ended up being a, a... Well, that's actually a really funny story. But he recorded what was supposed to be a Lynn Johnston record, and Lynn Johnston his parents living room in El Segundo with me and Anthony Shattuck on bass and Chess Smith on drums. Uh, one rather foggy Sunday morning <laughs> afternoon. Foggy because Lynn had been in a wedding the, the day before. So he was a little under the weather? No, he was they all, say? no, he was already fully lit when I got Oh, there. yes. But, but anyway, uh, <laughs> we recorded the thing. Chris was there recording it remotely and uh, really swell guy and I think I may have met him before that in passing at a gig at the Alligator Lounge or something but not the kind of thing I would have remembered right then uh, and then when the session was all done Lynn pronounced that it was actually Anthony's record and so the Anthony Shattuck Quartet was born <laughs> and that was Chris and Chris just seemed like such a great guy and then I ended up doing a little playing on the Ari Hart Lung right. CD and uh, I think the, that virtually every utterance of Anthony Shattuck with, with me playing and uh, Vinnie Golia uh, l later and Bert Carl, I think, will be released at some point. Actually, it's an interesting story about how this record ended up with, with Chris, because, and we won't, go in, we won't name names because... Oh, some, no, we can't. We shouldn't, but supposed to be someone else was going to release the CD. And for various reasons, it got delayed and delayed, and then they changed their mind about releasing it as a CD. And since we had a 44-minute piece, they offered to put it out on vinyl. We were like, well, now we have to edit it. And it, it got more delayed and more delayed. And then finally, I think you came up with the idea of Chris. I did. And I had met Chris, and I didn't even realize it when I played down in Long Beach for one of Shea Gower's things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, at, at, in that old round space that they were doing gigs in? at the dome right exactly and chris was selling his his stuff there at, at that gig and i met him there i didn't know it and um so he suggested chris i went and listened to what was on the label and i was like oh this is like we're right in the family here this well, is our stuff i know? thought the ge would dig him because he's not just putting out improvised music he's putting out punk rock and hip hop, hip -hop. Stuff so I, th I that's why I said you know gee check this guy out I think you'll like him and you know what we actually I met him and sat down with him maybe about a month ago here he came up to Culver City and we sat down and I, Chris is like a brother from another mother he's like me and Nelson it was automatic we have so much stuff in common it's crazy not only the sort of textural improv thing. But also, like, he loves hip-hop. Now we're, like, back and forth about what hip-hop. I've turned him on to some stuff. He turned me on to some stuff. So it's very cool. He's a super... I love Chris. He's a super cool guy. Yeah, he's a really sweet guy. He's also a really talented guitar player. Yeah. And, and um, he, he, uh, he's, he's had this vision for his record label. I mean, I remember when he first started, and I sort of chuckled to myself, like, oh, well, another person starting a record label. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, God. is he, crazy? <laughs> <laughs> but he's really, I mean, he's really had this vision for, for the label and for himself, and I'm really glad that you guys 
uh, all connected. You know, I think it's like you said, it's it's a yeah, it was automatic. It was it was so automatic when I heard what was on the catalog. Because the other person who was going to release, and we were grateful to have anyone release our stuff. But when I listened to the catalog, it was like, okay, well, this I guess this will work. But it was more sort of like underground, kind of weird rock stuff. And we have rock elements to what we do. But when I heard what was on Chris's label, I was just like, oh, like we're another branch on the tree. Right. We were so right in in the flow of what he's doing. It was a perfect thing, you know. Excellent. Well, thank you both. Thank you so, very much. Really Thanks, Sander. Thank you time to talk with me, and uh, I hope that when the CD comes out and you guys are able to do something. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can come down to the LB and do something We should do something there. together, because actually now, it, now I'm going to be around for the middle of September home, which I didn't know yeah. until... A month ago. We'll see if we're going to hook something up in, so in the LB. Definitely. <laughs> Talk definitely. to Chris. Yeah. There's also, you know about the the slow sound. I'm playing. You are. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing the opening night at this coffee house down there. I'm going to do a solo gig. Uh, actually, this is kind of cool because um, I'm going to do a solo gig, and I don't know if you know who Danny Long was. Danny Long, Danielle Long was this like really sweet, amazing musician that I got to know a little bit, who's a, a laptop ambient musician, had a, a band with her husband named Solaire. And Will, her husband, um, is also a laptop guy and doing this kind of like beautiful, lush, ambient, improvisational music. Danny just passed away um, about a month ago. She died in her sleep. She was only 26 years old. Her heart stopped, and apparently it's how her father died as well, who was 29. So the first night is going to be dedicated to the memory of Danny Long, and I, I put a piece together for her that night. So I'm looking forward to doing that, even though it's a kind of somber occasion. We're going to try and, and do something special for her and make it really unique and amazing. So is that going to be at the Antoyaba? Yes. And uh, so is that, what night is that, you that's a Wednesday night or the 16th? 16th, okay. Yeah. Great. I think that's the night that, that I'm playing too. So. Oh, you are? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Great. <laughs> we're, on, we're on the same bill. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, that's wonderful. I look forward to hearing it. I'll yeah, it'll, it'll be fun. It'll be good. Great. August 16th? No, it's um, September. September 16th. Oh, I'll be, in t I'll be home. Yeah. So, you want to try to come out? Yeah. Try to come out and hear that. Great. I should have you come down and play with me. No, no, no. I'm going to listen. <laughs> it's going to be... The, the idea is to, to be very kind of super low-key, like Glenn Bach sort of put it together, right? Is right. someone yeah. else involved? Mm -hmm. no, and he was doing um, concerts in his, in his uh, house at one point, and it's kind of very... It's not quite lowercase, but it's called slow sound because it's kind of very low-key, semi-ambient, more... T and it's a small, it's a yeah. small venue. Yeah, you, know? you can't. So, we could, we couldn't. We couldn't do what we do there. <laughs> Unless we napalm the room, changed it. All right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, do an Which we can version. do. Yeah, we could. Well, we've done that. We have done that. We did acoustic stuff. Well, acoustic. at, at uh, Spruce Street, we did yeah. all kinds of stuff. We did lots. Of, we did a dober. I remember you were playing I think recorder I, yeah, and, yeah. and uh, acoustic guitar. Yeah, we've done that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys so Thanks, much. Thanks, really Appreciate it. Merci, merci.